Thank you for tuning into the rundown here on WNYU 89.1 FM New York and online everywhere at WNYU.org. I'm your host, Grace Wanabo. Tonight, we will be covering the New York City Halloween Parade, the East Village's Mosaic Man, controversy surrounding the Gifted and Talented program, and the Save East River Park movement. We also have an exclusive interview with Finley Muratova, whose father, Dmitry Muratova, was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize for his work as an editor-in-chief for the Novoya Gazeta newspaper just last month. For our first story... The annual New York City Village Halloween Parade was able to march again this year after its disappointing cancellation due to the pandemic last year. Ruby Naylor and Trevor Johnson have the story. New York City's annual Village Halloween Parade is up and running again for its 48th annual event. The parade was almost unable to march this year due to lack of funds, but by the generosity of many donors, the parade was saved. There were 183 individual donors who contributed a total of $11,000, along with Jason Feldman, the vice president of UBS Financial Services, and his wife, Missy, who generously donated the remaining $150,000 needed to keep the parade marching. We were able to speak with Feldman about what ensuring the parade run this year meant for him. I was a kid. I grew up in Brooklyn. And then my dad was living in Tribeca, so I was back and forth between Brooklyn and Tribeca. And for me, coming to this parade when I was 14 years old was an uplifting, incredible moment. So if you feel the same, that's what makes me happy. Our city needed this, and to me it was just one of the most wonderful things that I could do. You know, someone's going to thank me. The truth is I want to thank everyone else. This parade is a Halloween staple for New York City. It was a huge disappointment last October when the nonprofit organization that runs the parade chose to cancel it to help and keep everyone safe from the COVID-19 pandemic. The only other time that the parade was not able to run was when Superstorm Sandy hit the East Coast in 2012. The parade even came together and marched just seven weeks after the 9-11 tragedy. Jean Fleming, who has been the artistic and producing director for 40 years, explained how she felt when she found out that Mr. Feldman had rescued the parade. Uh, that was the most amazing thing I've ever experienced, <laughs> practically. Um, it was extraordinary. It was like this huge burden was lifted off of me. Every year I worry about how I'm going to raise the money to do this event because it's what they call an event for the public good. People believe it will happen no matter what. They don't realize that actually there are people who have to raise all the money and make this all happen. And when that man, Jason Feldman, called me and said that that whole burden was lifted off of me, it was the most extraordinary feeling of the lightness of being. There's a lot that goes into ensuring the parade runs smoothly and stays on track. Fleming was able to give us insight into what it's like having such a huge responsibility in the background of the parade. Well, it's, it's a huge organizational effort um, that's done only by a few people. Um, we don't always have a lot of money. It's a vast volunteer effort. So I don't have a lot of people on staff. So um, there are about four of us who work on it all the time and um and it's a lot of work but i think that more than that i've always had this way of magical thinking that i believe that if i take care of every single person who calls me or writes to me that we'll be safe that the parade will be safe and so there's this huge effort 
that is now with the website and everything where thousands and thousands of people communicate with me and I have to answer every single one of them and I do. In honor of New York City children who missed out on Halloween last year, the theme of this year's parade is Let's Play, All Together Now. Themes in the past, just like this year's, have been modeled after major events happening in NYC and are meant to help bring communities together. For example, 2001, the theme for the year was Phoenix Rising, as the city was rising up and coming together after the attacks on the World Trade Center. The creator for this year's theme were Master Puppeteers Alex Kahn and Sofia Michielis. We spoke with Khan on Sunday, in which he told us what exactly went into creating the theme for this year. You know, when we come up with a theme, what we try to do is, the first thing we do is listen. And we try to find out what's going on, what are people talking about, what are they thinking about, are people anxious about something, are they optimistic about something, is there something in the news or in the world that is driving people. And of course, for the last two years, having missed the last year's parade, the thing that was most on people's mind is sort of missing one another, missing the normalcy of everyday humanity out in public space. And that's really what the Halloween parade is about. It's like being in love with all the strangers who live around you in this amazing city. So we wanted to sort of rekindle our love of humanity after two years of darkness and isolation. So what we decided to do was to look at humanity with fresh eyes. And the best way to do that is to look through the eyes of children. As we marched amongst the tens of thousands of people, all dressed in a mix of ghoulish and comical costumes, we met up with marchers of all ages and asked them why they chose to come out tonight and what the parade meant for them. Oh, yes. Um, so I am a puppeteer, and I'm puppeteering one of the skeletons for the skeleton crew. And Dia de los Muertos it means a lot to me. Uh, I'm Mexican, and so I celebrate Dia de los Muertos. So this is a way to like celebrate my ancestors and the life that they led in a fun way. It's amazing. They lost so much already. They don't even remember. She doesn't even remember her last Halloween. She was four. So for her, it's amazing. She's like blown away. Well, we're from Star Wars. I am a Jedi Knight. And this is Padme. We're from New York. We've lived here 25 years. She was born and raised here. We've never been in this parade before. So we figured it's about time. It's a father-daughter relationship. It's very important to me, of course. I hope it's important to her, too. And this is our way of celebrating New York City, especially after what happened last year. So this is a celebration of life. It's not just about Halloween. For WNYU 89.1 FM, this has been Trevor Johnson and Ruby Naylor. The Lighthouse Mosaic sculptures along St. Mark's Place and Astor Place have been iconic East Village landmarks for decades, but artist Jim Powers needs support to keep them around. Adelaide Miller has the story. For the rundown, 89.1 FM WNYU, this is Adelaide Miller. The St. Mark's Place Mosaic Row Lightpost Mosaics have been iconic East Village landmarks since the 1980s. After moving to New York following his service in the Vietnam War, artist Jim Powers began to experiment with public mosaic installations. Here's Jim on the history of his mosaic work and the origins of the mosaic trail. So, I started on top of St. Mark's Place in 1985, and I did sculpture that was, like, huge, around the trees and... I stayed all summer there, worked all the time, and uh, lived on the block for a couple of weeks or longer. Actually, lived and stayed by a tree 
This guy in the Village Voice did a cartoon two weeks in a row, and he used to cover people on the West Side. It was boring. So he started covering me and some other people on this side. And uh, how are you guys? Good to see you. And so that went out and after that, by 1988, uh, the Village Voice gave me the name Mosaic Man. For the last 35 years since then, Jim's passion for his art in the East Village community has motivated him to complete over 70 mosaic sculptures throughout the neighborhood, including the light pole mosaics. However, he faced pushback from local government due to the unauthorized nature of the project. The Monday after Thanksgiving, 1985, on a Tuesday, trucks pulled up up there, sanitation trucks, and a whole bunch of people came out with sledgehammers so I call that day uh, every year the Great St. Mark's Place Mas Mosaic Massacre. These days, the Mosaic Trail is embraced as an iconic landmark of the East Village. However, the immense time and resources required to maintain the mosaics have been solely Jim's responsibility, and he struggled to secure the funding he needs through grants and donations. Jim hopes to form a group of people who will learn his techniques for mosaic creation and carry on the legacy of the Mosaic Trail throughout the city. I spoke with NYU sophomore Helen Recklesaus about collaborating with Jim on the preservation of the mosaics and what the future holds for his project. Being an artist myself, I see in him what I see in myself when I'm kind of getting in these like crazily creative hazes, um, which is just you get ton you get in tunnel vision cycles of, you know, the end of the world is going to end when my heart ends and I can't breathe or eat or drink without thinking of my art or wanting to create it. And I just, I recognize that passion in him. Right now we're also in the process, like he's trying to teach me everything that he knows. Um, so therefore then I can infuse that knowledge into anybody who's interested and teach other people who can teach other people who can hopefully work together as a team to construct all of these. With only a small team, Helen and Jim face the challenge of balancing the scale of their ambitions with their limited time and resources. I think I need people helping me out too because I'm a student and I'm working three other jobs besides this. So I've just been like struggling to find time to really put all, all my effort into helping him, which I really wanted to do. And I'm constantly thinking about him and like picking up pieces on the street or tiles that I find, um, or even glass that I have of my own collection to put on his poles, but it's pretty hard to kind of think big scale when I don't even know who to contact. It's just, it's hard to get an entire community together. I've just been trying to find people who are equally as interested um, in helping him as I am, and so then we can concoct a plan. The future of the Mosaic Trail is uncertain, but Jim and Helen are optimistic. These poles are just... Like, every every time I ask somebody about, hey, have you seen the poles, the mosaic poles? Everybody's like, yeah, of course. They're just commonly known by everybody in this community um, and in downtown New York, I feel like. And it would just be such a shame if they um, slowly eroded over the years when Jim wasn't working on them or um, if, let's say, like... Jim passes away and I can't relay all the knowledge I have to somebody and organize them to be repaired. Like, it's just, it would be such a shame to see them 
fall apart and there's so much history ingrained in them and love and soul put into that work and yeah I just encourage everybody who's listening to this and who's interested to reach out because we need your help and Jim needs your help and I want the mosaic legacy to live on forever if you'd like to get involved in the Mosaic Trail project, you can contact Helen at hmr9099 at nyu.edu. For 89.1 FM WNYU's The Rundown, this has been Adelaide Miller. In October, New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio announced that he would be ending the city's controversial gifted and talented program for accelerated learning. But Mayor-elect Eric Adams has said he would keep and expand the program, leaving GNT's future uncertain. Jack Peterson and Grace Symes have the story. On October 8th, Mayor Bill de Blasio revealed a plan for an inclusive new kind of accelerated learning that would replace the gifted and talented program, which has long been criticized for segregating students by race and income level. The new plan would no longer separate gifted children into different classes and would instead provide accommodations for students who need accelerated learning within normal classrooms. We're getting rid of a lot of the artificial barriers that limited the number of kids who could get accelerated learning. But the final plan won't be established until December, just one month before Mayor-elect Eric Adams, who supports expanding GNT, takes over. To David Kirkland, the executive director of the NYU Metropolitan Center for Research on Equity and the Transformation of Schools, that is telling. Kirkland is a member of the School Diversity Advisory Group that in 2019 published a report advocating for the elimination of the gifted and talented program. He says de Blasio ignored the report's findings then. This announcement comes almost two years after, you know, a committee recommended that, you know, um, the gifted and talented program was, you know, um, it drove segregation, but it was developmentally inconsistent with um, the ability to identify those students who needed special support. Kirkland says the proposed new program is almost exactly what the report originally suggested as an alternative to GNT. This is what the accelerated learning program, you know, um, was positioned to do, was to create the kinds of classrooms that deserve our babies. Parents of children in the GNT program have held rallies calling for de Blasio to save the program, arguing that he isn't taking parents' views into account and that the program should be expanded. But most experts don't believe that GNT is a program worth keeping. Not only have integrated classrooms been shown to be better for all students. The research shows that when you have, you know, intellectual and academic diversity within students, all students tend to do better. But GNT is also widely considered a discriminatory program. While 70% of New York City public school students are Black and Latino, approximately 75% of students enrolled in gifted classes are white or Asian American, according to Department of Education data. The gifted and talented program in New York City assessed four-year-olds on a single test to determine giftedness. The percentage of students who actually get into the gifted and talented program are overwhelmingly white and Asian, you know, um, and this is a product of the baked-in, you know, inequality that a test, a single performance metric, you know, um, does when it is utilized to determine who gets access to the best education that the city has to offer and who does not. To get an insider's perspective, we talked to WNYU's news director, Jack Peterson, who was in the gifted and talented program from first to fifth grade. Yeah, I remember my parents originally not wanting 
to even do the diagnostic at all, but they figured that they were going to have to. That was like what they were being told by other parents and stuff at the time is like, yeah, well, if you can do gifted and talented, then you should do it because, you know, they're not going to pay attention to you otherwise, basically. Peterson tested into the program at four years old and went to PS230 in Kensington, Brooklyn. He says that while Kensington was predominantly South Asian and Middle Eastern, almost the entire GNT population was made up of white kids, bust in from neighborhoods like Park Slope. It quickly was very clear that those were the kids who were put in the gifted and talented program. Like it was exactly drawn along those lines, you know. Even as a kid, Peterson remembered being put off by the stark racial divide between the two classrooms. And I like never would interact with the kids who were not in the gifted and talented program. And one thing that I definitely noticed was that they were exclusively non-white, all of them. Um, and from what I could tell as well, most of them spoke like multiple other languages and maybe not English as their first either. Um, so I grew to assume, you know, they all took the same test as me. And, and because most of them didn't speak English all that well, that's maybe why they didn't succeed in that test. Peterson said he never saw most of the kids who weren't in GNT again after he graduated, in part because while he went to a progressive middle school in Manhattan, most of his non-GNT classmates ended up in one school near Kensington. There was a middle school that was known among our elementary school for being like the one you don't want to get into. It was a school that none of the resources were given to. And I remember like half of the half of the school's population, like everybody from who was not in GNT, uh, got into that school, you know, and only that school. Peterson and Kirkland agreed that de Blasio's decision to scrap the gifted and talented program was more performative than heartfelt. And as for Eric Adams' plan to expand GNT? He's wrong. Eric Adams is proposing, you know, um, to create more segregated schools. For The Rundown 89.1 FM, this has been Grace Symes. The Eastside Coastal Resiliency Plan is now underway, and the battle over the East River Park continues. Here's the story. Phase construction started this Monday at the East River Park. The city plans to clear out 1,000 mature trees, soiling the 60-acre biodiverse park, and remove Lower Manhattan's only large public green space. It's part of a plan called Eastside Coastal Resiliency, which was funded by the city of New York and the federal government and aims at lessening the flood risk due to coastal storms and rising sea levels on Manhattan's east side. Stretching from East 25th Street to Montgomery Street, It'll create a two-and-a-half-mile system of raised parks, flood walls, berms, and movable floodgates. Essentially, the city is creating a mile-long wall along the water in a massive levee, which will be packed with eight feet of fill and topped with a new park. Since the announcement of the $1.45 billion plan in 2018, it has been met with outrage and protest. The day before construction began, Activists gathered at Tompkins Square Park for a last-ditch march in protest. The de Blasio administration came forward with a newer, faster, more expensive plan. It also was the moment when a guy named Jamie Torres Springer, who is the head of the D.C. Groups like East River Park Action claim that the plan is counterintuitive, that there are alternatives that could preserve much of the park while providing flood control. They're also giving us less protection, the park protecting the community. The park is very absorbent during a storm. It's already a biodiverse structure. The whole world is trying to imitate how you build marsh. In the middle of the city, FDR is built on marshland. That's how you drain. That's what keeps you safe. That was Joan Rhinemouth, 
a longtime resident of the Lower East Side and advocate for the park's preservation. She's holding a sign that reads, "The only thing you'll get protection from is shade." One of the things that causes air pollution is heat. So this whole area is going to heat up. AstroTurf, they're about to make it illegal in schools because kids' sneakers are melting by playing soccer on AstroTurf. And that's the plan for the park, AstroTurf and cement. They fear the loss of trees and the collection of dust remnants from construction will cause a public health crisis for the Lower East Side community, which is populated mostly by people of color, elderly, and low-income residents. One forty-foot tree that's sixty, whatever it looks like, cubic feet of pure oxygen. One little—not little tree, but one tree. So you take down a thousand. That's sixty thousand every day. Of pure oxygen, but you're leaving us the 54 million cars. It's going to get very hot in there during the summer. There are people who do not have Connecticut houses for the weekend, like me. The city told us go in your houses and turn the air conditioning on. You can look up on some of those houses and see six air conditioners. Air conditioning isn't the answer. I asked Joan what the future of the park might look like. I think that they will lose forever. A green space, a cement slab with a tree pit, is not a biodiverse park. Although construction has already begun, we're going to do something, and we're not going to do nothing. We will be there. You'll see us. <laughs> the tree is nowhere here. I mean, it's For the rundown, this has been Grace Wanabo. Around the world today, the state of journalism continues to fight against repression. Today, rundown reporter Izzy McMahon. Has an exclusive interview with Finley Muratova, whose father Dmitry Muratova was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize for his work as editor in chief of Russia's Novaya Gazeta newspaper just last month. Hi, rundown. This is Izzy McMahon, a reporter, and I'm joined in the station right now with Finley Muratova. Finley, you want to say hi? Yeah, hi everyone. So Finley is an NYU student. Finley, can you tell me a little bit about what you study and do at NYU? Uh, yeah, I'm a senior now.、Um, I study journalism and environmental studies, but like mostly journalism. But we have to double major.、Um, that's about it. Oh, I'm on print track. If that tells anyone anything. Awesome, and I know you did some stuff with Washington Square News, right? I did. I worked there starting in my freshman fall, and I was one of the people who resigned in the scandal, I guess you can call it, that happened last fall. So fall of my junior year. Nice, nice. And so your dad, Nobel Peace Prize winner. Yeah, oh my God! For about a month. Take me back to the day your dad won.、Uh, he called you, right? He did call me. It was actually really funny. Um, it was six in the morning here, and I was asleep. And my buzz, like my phone, is on mute except for my, like my dad and my mom. And so I got a call from my dad, and I picked up, and I immediately asked who died, because why else would he be calling me at six in the morning?、Um, plus, like our lives haven't been particularly stable with him being a journalist in Russia. So, and there was a pause on the other line, and I was shitting bricks in the meantime. And my dad just. Was like, oh,、um, sorry, you're actually speaking to the Nobel Peace Prize laureate, <laughs>、um, and yeah, and then I remember laughing a lot because I couldn't, I can, be- I could believe it, but like I also couldn't believe it, so I was laughing a lot.、Mm-hmm. So, w- when your dad has called you before, because you talked about like there's that fear because he's a journalist in Russia. Yeah, can you? Elaborate a little bit on that. Like, what's that like having a father who is a journalist in a very repressive, dangerous country, 
to be a journalist? Yeah, um, it, it comes down to it's scary. Um, I think that's the best way to put it. It, yeah, it's just scary. Um, we would go through periods of time when I was younger, then I was pretty much certain that he's just not going to come home that day. Like that, that will be it. Um, there were periods of time like that, especially with like specific articles, specific threats, uh, dangerous periods in time. And then other times it would be relatively easy to forget about the dangers um, when it was a calmer period. So it comes and goes in waves, but generally speaking, it's scary. It's also really awesome because it's a really exhilarating, fast-paced life, and I enjoy that. Um, but yeah. So your dad is now the editor-in-chief of the Novia Gazeta. Mm -hmm. um, tell me about some memories you have as a child, um, either at, at Novia Gazeta or just like learning about it. Do you have any stories? Yeah, I do. So my dad has been the editor-in-chief for longer than um, you and I have been alive. Um, and he's one of the, like, I don't know, founding fathers of the newspaper, him and a bunch of his wonderful friends. I kind of grew up in the newsroom. When my parents didn't have anybody to leave me with at home, they would just let me roam the hallways, run around, go crazy. Um, I had a lot of, like, what I would call, like, my friends, but they were, like, 40 years older than me. And they would just like give me toys and make me tea and like play cartoons for me. But I pretty much grew up in the newsroom, so it always just felt like home. I think I remember the newsroom for as long as I remember like myself consciously. And growing up in the newsroom, do you think that's what led you to want to be a journalist now? I don't know what led me to want to be a journalist because, again, for as long as I remember myself, I just always wanted to do what he does. Um, it just kind of clicked. I think I'm very lucky in that regard compared to a lot of other people who struggle with like not knowing what they want to do out of college and those things being really stressful and scary. I think I'm very lucky in that regard because I kind of never questioned it. It was like a very clear cut answer. This is what I want to do. And now that I've been doing it for a few years, I want to do it even more. So I just got very fortunate, mm -hmm. <laughs> but I have no idea what started it. Right. Um, I know your dad was close um, with the journalist Anna Politkovskia, um, and she covered the war in Chechnya. And yeah. um, can you tell me a little bit about what what it was like? You were pretty young, right, when, when she yeah. passed. I was um, six. So could you tell me just in the listeners a little bit about, like, who she is and your relationship with her? Yeah, um, I obviously don't have a deep personal relationship with her because I was only 16 years old. 16 what? Six years old, 2006, um, when she was murdered. But um, my dad told me stories about me interacting with her, which brings me a lot of joy. Um, like how I would bump into her in the newsroom because I was running like crazy. Or um, how we met during the... They had like an, a, a press fair or something in one of the Moscow parks where people could like sign up um, to receive newspaper in the mail. Um, and she was playing with me. So I hear those stories and it's always it's just nice to know that like she was around in the same orbit. Um, but I heard a lot of stories about her after her passing as well from my dad. Kind of instead of bedtime stories, I would get stories about how cool she was. And I would always ask for more and more and more. Um, I have a tattoo dedicated to her now. What's the tattoo? Um, it's it's designed by my roommate. Shout out Annie. Um, 
it's so Anna would have this red sweater, red turtleneck sweater um, that she always, not always, but like she wore a lot. And she would have um, very specific glasses and a kind of a, a little bit of a crooked smile that people remembered. So it's the glasses, the outline of a smile and her turtleneck on my forearm. That's beautiful. Yeah. Um, so it's been a long time since a journalist has won the Nobel Peace Prize in general. Yeah. Um, talk to me a little bit about what you think the importance of that is today, the importance of having a journalist in the world represented. I mean, I suppose there are many answers to your question, and it would take us forever to go through all of them. But I think it's crazy important because of the way, with the way journalism become and the way journalism is perceived currently, um, with especially in the U.S. with the fake news and the way media is so polarizing and the idea of objectivity kind of, in my opinion, ruining soulful, helpful journalism because people are too afraid of being not being objective so they won't actually venture into the territory of human rights advocacy in journalism. And I think that... Um, I have to say specifically that Maria Ressa got that Nobel Prize and the woman has been single-handedly standing up to Filipino dictatorship for like, what, several decades? That's incredible. Um, and my dad as well. And I'm very proud of that. But I think it shows what journalism should be and what kind of journalism we should value. Entertainment journalism is great. News reporting is fine. Objective journalism, in my opinion, is obsolete. Um, I think a journalist should be a person who does something akin to what Maria or my dad or my dad's uh, colleagues do. And as a student journalist yourself, I know you're very passionate about covering Title IX mm -hmm. and the Red Zone and sexual assault in college campuses. Do you think you've been inspired or you're trying to kind of reach the, the kind of journalism that Ressa, your father, and everyone at Novia Gazeta is doing? I don't know what I'm trying to do. Um, I, my only hope is that I'll be a good journalist and I can be the best journalist I'm capable of being eventually. Right now I'm just learning and I have so much to learn. Um, I think that the cool thing about quality journalism is that it's different from reporter to reporter, from journalist to journalist. Um, so I guess I'm excited to discover my own thing or to see where the thing that I'm doing now leads me. Awesome. Well, that was a great conversation. You, anything else you feel like we didn't talk about? You want to you want to cover? Uh, no, not not really. Thank you. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Finley, for coming in. Finley's been doing awesome student journalism and just journalism out in the <laughs> world. You can check Finley's work out at the Student Nation. Finley, what was the most recent article you just had uh, published? Do you remember the name? Oh, I would have to put a huge trigger warning on that one. Sure. So I'll give you probably the one before that. Mm -hmm. um, so the one before that, also trigger warning, folks, because I do cover sexual assault, but it was um, how to survive being a student survivor. It was a conversation with the lawyer, Wendy Murphy, who was um, basically advising current student survivors on how to increase their chances of a successful Title IX case. Great. Well, you can check that out if you're interested. Finley, thank you so much for coming into the thank station. Thank you so much for inviting me. Yeah. It was wonderful. Letting us into your life a little bit. Very fun. Mm -hmm. This has been Izzy McMahon reporting for The Rundown. I will take the reins back to our host and producer, Grace Wanabo.
Thank you for that. If you like what you heard or you want to hear something different, you can email news at wnyu.org. I'll be back here next week, same time, same place, and I hope you'll join me. Sorry Not Sorry is coming up next. I'm Grace Monabo, and this has been The Rundown on WNYU 89.1 FM, New York.